Welcome to episode 30 of the RSA Resident and Student Podcast Series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. RSA is an accessible, collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Dr. Michael Wilk, resident at Brown University Rhode Island Hospital and RSA Vice President, speaks with Dr. Riley Grosso, Chief Resident at University of Cincinnati Medical Center. Today, Drs. Wilk and Grosso discuss imposter syndrome and how it can affect emergency physicians. Hey everyone, this is Mike Wilk. I am the AAEM RSA Vice President, bringing you another podcast. So really excited about this topic today. We're going to be talking about imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. And we have chief resident from University of Cincinnati, Dr. Riley Grosso. He's going to talk to us a little bit about this topic and then also give a little bit of her personal experience with this and how she's dealt with it. Real excited. Thank you so much for coming today. No problem. Thanks for having me. We'll go ahead and get right into it. And let's talk about a little bit about what exactly is imposter syndrome? How do we define it? You know, where did this term come from? Yeah. So just a little background for everybody and why I personally am really interested in this topic is that I personally have a lot of imposter phenomena. It's in the literature, it's referred to as imposter phenomenon and imposter syndrome both. So you'll hear me use those terms interchangeably. And that's and the reason I got involved and kind of researched it, decided to do a talk about it. Um, and I've really done a lot of reading about it is mostly because I suffer from it is really the only reason. So this term was actually developed by two psychotherapists in Georgia State University in 1978. They were working with 150 women for other reasons and had about 150 women who had been referred for psychotherapy for various reasons and were in group therapy. And they noticed that all of these women were highly successful. Most of them were PhD, tenure track, doctoral and doctoral students, respected professionals in the area. And all of them, even though they were all successful by many objective means, felt like they didn't really experience this internal uh, sense of success. So they all thought they were imposters. They essentially, despite all of these external accolades like honors, high scores on standardized tests, praise, and a bunch of recognition from their colleagues, felt that they had essentially run a game on everyone and had fooled everyone into thinking that they were really good at their jobs when they weren't. They described this in a paper in 1978, and since then it took a little while for literature to kind of catch up to it, and in the popular media it's become very much more popular in the last couple of years. Sheryl Sandberg talked about it in her book, Lean In, and I think that was a place where a lot of, at least I know it's a very popular book amongst female professionals, and I think a lot of female professionals thought when they read that it really hit home, and then since then there's been many articles in business magazines and even some actual research done on imposter phenomenon since then. So it's kind of so there's some research from the 90s, but it's really picked up in the last four to five years. It's fascinating. You know, I'm finishing up my intern year at Brown, and, you know, I definitely feel like there's been days where I leave shifts and I'm wondering, do I belong here? You know, there's shifts that I have great shifts, but there's definitely hard days as an intern. And I, I imagine it's, it's probably fairly common and, you know, it's not discussed in medicine. No, I think part of the phenomenon is the fear that someone will find out that you're not supposed to be where you are, and admitting that you don't think you're supposed to be where you are is probably, is, has been defined as one of the things that imposters really don't want to do. They have this fear of being found out, mm -hmm. this fear that like the next thing that they do, someone will be like, wait, why are you here? And why did you get here? How did you get here? You're not supposed to be here. So, which leads to a bunch of downstream effects of like, 
residents and physicians and professionals not reaching for that next step because they're afraid they're not even supposed to have what they have now. So it's been shown to have a negative effect on career development and motivation to lead and a bunch of other things in the literature that really affects, I think, residents in particular. The data is not great in medicine. They haven't done any studies in emergency medicine specifically, Hmm. but the only real study that's been done was out of Wisconsin. It was in family medicine residents, and they sent surveys to family medicine residents, and they sent an imposter scale. That's a validated scale they use in in the literature to say you are an imposter or you're Mm -hmm. not. And they sent surveys to family medicine residents in Wisconsin, had them fill it out, tried to correlate it with confidence, anxiety, depression, some test-taking stuff, and essentially found that about 41% of women who they sent the survey to, which it was about half, and it was about 50% women, 50% men, about 41% of women suffered from imposter phenomenon, 40% of these female residents, and then about even about 25% of men, 24% of the male residents. So there's been a lot of talk about the gender difference in Mm. imposter phenomenon mostly because in the popular media, it's talked about in female development and female professional development. There's been studies that show it's equally prevalent. There's been studies that show it's, it's much more, has a gendered preference for female professionals. But in this study, at least, it was about 41% women and 25% men in the, fe- in the family medicine residents. So, wow. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's pretty prominent. It's interesting in the family medicine study, they talk about how they feel that family medicine residents may be particularly susceptible to it because they train with a bunch of specialists, similarly mm. to us. They spend some time on a cardiology service. They spend some time with OBs. They spend some time with endocrinologists. And the vast extensive training in that one area that the specialist, they hypothesize that this makes family medicine residents imposter phenomenon worse because they're surrounded by people who just expect them to also mm. know as much. I extrapolate that to emergency medicine because we do that literally every day. Like how many times do you call a consultant and they just expect you to know what you're calling them for? I'm not calling a consultant unless I need something, unless it extends my, unless I need to, you know, I don't, I don't know this particular disease process as well as I should. Mm -hmm. I need help with a dispo. I need help with a procedure that I'm not comfortable doing. So I'm obviously calling them when this has exceeded my little bubble of emergency medicine skills or not so little. But they will often respond in like a, well, why don't you know this kind of way, which as a resident totally made my imposter phenomenon worse. Well, of course, I don't know like exactly where the ectopic beat in this EKG came from Mr. EP physician who's like studied for eight years and I am a resident. And that made me feel like, well, should I know that? And then I have this whole imposter cycle that happens. So I think emergency medicine is particularly susceptible to it because even after training, like you still have to deal with all those consultants right. who expect the expertise that they have yeah. from you. I imposter more when I talk to them. It definitely feels like that makes it worse. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. I've never, you know, actually thought about that if it varies between different specialties. And you're right, because in the emergency department, we are the door to the hospital, and we're often dealing with all those consultants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they and but you would never say back, well, I don't, you know, when the cardiologist doesn't understand why you don't know this one thing. You would never say, well, I'm going to walk into the next room and deal with a pregnant lady who's bleeding or and then I'm going to walk into a anterior chamber that looks cloudy on a slit lamp and you can't do any of that. But I don't think that when I talk to them, there's not a voice in my head that says, like, you're fine. You know what you know. And that's enough. When I talk to a consultant who expects me to know the things he knows, I in my head build that expectation as well. So it makes it worse. I think there's not a study. I'd love to do one eventually about emergency medicine specifically, because I think we are particularly susceptible to it. 
And I think it'd be interesting to study that population, but really the only one in medicine that I can find is family medicine. Or yeah, yeah, and no, all that stuff really seems like it's a, a study that needs and should be done. Mm-hmm. And do you have any more personal antidotes about, you know, your, your personal experience with um, yeah. imposter syndrome? And <laughs> Yeah, so my yeah. mentors who call it refractory imposter syndrome, they, <laughs> they feel that it is uh, beyond help sometimes. There's a couple key behaviors that reinforce imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. So there's a ton of developmental psychology about why imposter syndrome develops. I have not studied that very much and don't particularly care because as in medicine, you come to your specialty as a fully formed adult. So all the developmental stuff has already happened. I can't mm-hmm. prevent my co-residents and my trainees from having imposter phenomenon. Um, there are behaviors that really reinforce imposter phenomenon. So you would think a lot of people who don't suffer from it say, well, you're successful. You're a chief resident. Mm-hmm. I was on the SAM board. Like, I have all these objective right. things. You're a, that you're say, a highly like, successful person well, in this yes, career. In, yeah. Yes, objectively, yes. Yeah. But there are a bunch of different things that imposters do that don't allow that to break the cycle. Mm-hmm. So one of them, it's referred to as diligence and hard work. And this, it's this cycle of you have a new task and you're worried that someone's going to find out that you're an idiot. And so I work really, really, really hard to prevent that discovery. So I, you know, I study a little bit more than I thought I needed to. I, I start the lecture earlier. I mm-hmm. practice it more than I should or than some people would. And then I do well on the tasks, task, get approval. And then I have all these like, oh, I got all this approval. But instead of relating the approval back to my innate ability to give that lecture or to you know, pass that test, I relate it all back to that effort that I put mm-hmm. into it because of my fear of being found out. So I do that all the time. I did that with this lecture. Afterwards, I was like, you know, I practiced really hard. And someone was like, you realize you're impostering about this. Like, yeah. you just, <laughs> you have an innate ability to talk. Blame it on that because you don't blame it on your innate ability. So the next time it happens, you think, okay, I have to work that hard again. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it's not going to happen for me. So that's definitely one behavior that I employ. There's a couple other ones that imposters employ. Intellectual flattery. I think we all do this as residents. We all learn what our attendings want. And you're like, okay, this guy wants to CT scan everybody. Mm-hmm. So when I say my plan to him, I'm going to CT. I'm yeah. just going to say like, I'm going to CT this person. Yeah. The problem is, is then you get the approval of the person you're doing this to and they give you approval. And then you think, well, that wasn't really my idea. That was just me yeah. using their ideas. Yeah. So I do that all the time. Yeah. And I've been trying to, as a senior resident, do a little more of like asking attendings, okay, this is what I would have done. Mm-hmm. I know that you want to do this. Yeah. Is this something that I is that a reasonable plan? Because in your head, if you never say it out loud, then you never get reinforcement that what you're, what you're thinking is good. Yeah. Right. So I do that all the time. We had trauma attendings. Our trauma faculty love fast exams, even inappropriate fast mm-hmm. exams. So when I was on trauma, I would do the thing where like the patient had been pan scanned and was totally stable. And when they'd ask me for my plan, I'd be like, oh, we should totally fast them, even hmm. though I know that's an inappropriate use of fast. So I do that as well. And then the last one's called charm and perceptiveness. And that is a That's more of a personal, like learning your superiors personally and, you know, asking to see pictures of their kids and, Mm. you know, talking about music that they like and all that kind of stuff. I totally do that. I'd like to do that. think I do that not to win their flattery, but because I actually like talking to people about their lives. But then when they give you positive feedback professionally, you blame it on the personal relationship. So they just told me I was good at that intubation because I was nice and asked about their kids or something like that. There's a bunch of different things that uh, that kind of imposters kind of dabble in, and yeah. you do usually do one or two of them. I think I'm probably guilty of doing all of them mm-hmm. at times. I think most imposters are as well. One particular story that comes to mind is actually with this lecture. I got a didactic accepted to SAM about imposter phenomenon, and I immediately texted a friend of mine and said, I got my didactic accepted. And he said, that's great. And I said, 
but I don't think I should give it. There's got to be someone more qualified than me. Yeah. Like I'm just a resident. <laughs> I'm not qualified. I've never talked at SAM before. And he was like, you realize what you're doing right now. Like you're impostering about your imposter wow. phenomenon lecture. So I do this all the time. And yeah. there's like daily anecdotes about it. So yeah. yeah. And do you think you've changed the way that you've dealt with it from early on in your residency career to now where you're approaching graduation? I think that I am much more aware of it. Mm -hmm. I'm aware of how it affects my interactions. I will have interactions with consultants where they say something that I know is wrong. And in the beginning of residency, I would have been afraid that I was wrong Mm -hmm. and said, you know, they must be right. They're much more confident about this than I am. Or I'm just an intern. I I don't have. But I knew at the time, like, you know, innately you're wrong. So I've I've gotten a lot more comfortable with being wrong and saying or the fear of being wrong. And I found that I'm not actually as wrong as I think I am. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is, like, literally, I was was joking around with people yesterday. This giving this talk at SAM was literally just therapy for me, like getting up in front of a group and having to talk about this is one thing that's huge. And I have started talking about it a lot with my colleagues and I have a lot of mentors now who know that about Mm -hmm. me and I think it's important and they'll just say like hey are you not doing this because you're impostering about it because you don't think that you are qualified to do it are you not applying for this job because you think you're not good enough to do it and it's really helpful it was hard to tell them I think that I don't know what I'm doing Mm -hmm. but once I did and once I told the people around me now I just have people who help me and call me out on it all the time and say like you're impostering about this Mm -hmm. or do you think this is your imposter syndrome and just the constant reminder is nice. And I have a lot of really good mentors who call me out on that all the time. And that kind of built from me being able to say out loud, like, I suffer from this. Yeah. There's actually, to move into like what you can do about mm-hmm. it, there's actually only a couple papers about it. Right now, there's like a ton of stuff about like how it affects people's career development, but no one's talking about how to fight it. Yeah. It actually goes back to the original paper in the 70s the trying to figure out how to fix imposter phenomenon. So one of the things they talk about is group therapy. And I think in emergency medicine, that's more like, you know, breakout sessions during grand rounds or a journal club about it, or, you know, just like go to an attending's house, sit around and talk about it, go to a bar, sit around and have a beer about it. Because I gave this talk at a grand rounds lecture, like a similar conversation. And the number of attendings and residents who came up to me and were like, this is so something that I do. I do this. The other thing that happens in group therapy sessions or group settings is you sit, I mean, ideally, you look up to people in your department, right? Right, of course. You have residents that you want to be Mm -hmm. like, you have attendings you want to be like. And if you sit there and watch them imposter, so if you watch someone you really admire imposter and you think, that's ridiculous, like this person's amazing, of course, they're not as dumb as they think they are. The next time you do it, you think maybe someone thinks that about me and someone will, someone's actually think sitting in the circle and thinking the same thing about me. And maybe this is a little ridiculous. So group therapy has its benefits and group conversation has its benefits. There are a couple other things you can do. One is called, uh, is like trying to change the ritualistic behavior of imposters. So the classic imposter, you know, these people who are like, well, I'm just going to study so I don't fail. Like, I don't think I failed that board or that in-service exam. They walk out, no, you know. I also think there's a little bit of people thinking you're cocky if you walk out and say, like, I killed that. I did right. great. But I think most of the most imposters will say, like, oh, I, I don't think I failed or I didn't, you know, I didn't throw up on the computer. So I think I probably did fine. Yeah. Changing that ritualistic behavior from studying to fail so that I don't fail and changing it to I'm going to study so I do well seems super little. But mm-hmm. that breaks some of the cycle of just studying to do well enough. And then having to study again to do well enough again instead of I'm going to study to do well and not fail. So that's like one other thing is I try to do that. I'm horrible at it. I catch myself at all the time. The most recent in-service exam, 
I remember I walked out and someone asked me how I did and I thought, oh, I don't think I failed it. And I said, no, I think I did well. Like I had to like, they were laughing at me because yeah. I sound like an idiot. You have to stop and actually make a conscious effort. And the last one I just like, I don't actually know if it works, but the last one they suggest in the paper is that you role play. So one of the things imposters don't do well is they don't take compliments. Mm-hmm. There's like a guilt and a shame because they don't think they deserve the compliment. So get real uncomfortable getting compliments. So the way a way to be aware of at least the feelings you have when you get a compliment is to role play scenarios in which you have to take the compliment. So for example, I'm going to tell you like you are LeBron James, you are the best basketball player ever. And now I'm going to compliment you on your basketball skills. And you have to sit here like I've just told you you're the best one. You can't argue with me. So now I have to tell you, like, I'm going to tell you, like, you have a great three-point shot, you dribble amazing, you see the whole court, and you have to sit here and it's, see what it feels like to take a compliment that's yeah. real. And then notice that you have that same feeling when someone compliments you on something that you've done. Yeah. And that feeling of guilt and shame that happens with compliments, at least you're aware of it and can kind of say, like, maybe this is just my imposter syndrome. Maybe I can actually just accept and say thank you to this compliment. So. It's something I've, I've tried it a couple of times with friends just because it's kind of funny. But yeah. I think the concept of being aware of how you feel when you get comp- instead of that should boost your confidence. That should change how you think about stuff. Mm-hmm. But being aware that it might not because of this imposter phenomenon, I think, is an important step. So a lot of it's just awareness about what you do. And then yeah. I think the biggest thing I found in other residents and myself is just talking about it yeah. and just like putting it out there. I have mentees, mentors that ask me, like, is this your imposter phenomenon mm-hmm. affecting your ability to, you know, when I thought about like not applying for chief, I had someone mm-hmm. say to me, like, is that just your imposter phenomenon or do you actually think you can't do this? They're like, all objective measures say that you can do this. Mm-hmm. Why would you not? And so that was a important thing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a great point is just being aware that you have this or that, you know, you're feeling this way. And a lot of the uh, your co-residents are probably feeling that way, too. Yeah. But it's interesting. No one... The family medicine study actually correlated imposter feelings with confidence and it both in males and females negatively correlated with confidence which is kind of intuitive if you think about what imposter phenomenon Mm -hmm. is but then there's another paper that talks about how attendings decide how to give residents tasks unsupervised Mm -hmm. tasks and one of the four things that they found that attendings use to gauge whether a resident is ready for an unsupervised task is the resident's own confidence in their ability to do the task there are the outliers who are like super confident like of course i can do this Sure, I can just let's do the C-section right here. I'm great at this. Like, let's yeah. just do this. Like, ridiculous confidence that mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense. But for the most part, attendings can gauge confidence and say, "Well, this resident doesn't think they can do this line. Why would I let them do that unsupervised?" So, concerning to someone who has imposter phenomenon, I worry that not only does it affect like my mental state, yeah, but it also may affect how attendings are giving me things to do. So they may give me less things to do unsupervised yeah. because. I'm not confident in myself because of my imposter phenomenon. So they found a negative correlation with confidence a little more strongly in females, but both in men and women. So yeah. that was fascinating. Yeah, and that's another great reason to be aware of it because, mm-hmm. you know, it may affect your training. Yeah, and so. for those around you to be aware of yeah. it too. Like I have attendings who now, like I remember I was doing a dialysis catheter and I had an attending who was sitting outside the room and I had done quite a few lines mm-hmm. and perfectly safe to let me do this dialysis mm-hmm. catheter unsupervised, but I started dilating for the dialysis catheter, started bleeding a lot. And I said, you know, can you, do you mind coming in here? I don't think I'm doing this correctly. And he, he was like, nope, that's just you being you. Yeah. You're imposturing. I trust you. Do you think you're doing it right? And I was like, yeah, but I'm not a hundred percent. Like, just go. Just do it. And it was yeah. fine. I was doing the line fine. Yeah. He had watched me do a million lines before. Yeah. 
So having people who know you is, is nice. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes that's all you need is that little extra boost. Yeah. But having, done. saying it out loud, saying like, I feel like I don't know what I'm doing half the time yeah. is like the biggest hurdle in mm-hmm. that. And then after that, it, it gets better. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, well, this is such a such a great topic um, to discuss, especially these days in residencies. There's such a big emphasis on wellness and resiliency. I think this is another topic that we should discuss and residents should be aware of. So, you know, thank you so much for no telling us your story and talking about it. I mean, I hope everyone enjoyed the talk. So, again, this is Mike Wilk. I'm the RSA Vice President, PGY1 at Brown. And this is a Dr. Riley Grosso, Chief Resident at University of Cincinnati. I'm about to graduate, so appreciate you coming coming by, and thank you. Thanks. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about RSA, please visit our website, www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students. Thank you.